So what did we do with Jesus' prayer? We blew it. We blew it royally. Not only have we done the exact opposite of what Jesus prayed, but it's even worse because Jesus said, I'm going to help you to become one. I'm going to help you become united. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, which will draw you together. And uh, unfortunately, it didn't work. Or it hasn't worked so far. We're hopelessly divided. Now today, we're going to embark on the second half of the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is six chapters. The first three chapters include not a single command. The last three chapters are full of commands. That's the way God does business. He never puts commands before resources. Because you don't do that with your children. When you give birth to a child, the first thing you don't do is say, hey kid, here's the rules. Be sure you eat, don't poop your pants, and on and on you go. You'd never do that to a child. What do you do for months and months and months of a child's life? You hold them, you cuddle them. You want them to know how precious they are, that they're loved, they're protected. And then when they get a little older, you start to say, okay, you got to learn to say please and thank you and eventually potty training and all the rest of that stuff. But you, no good parent puts responsibilities before resources, nor does God. God doesn't say, okay, now you become Christians, here are the rules. He never gives us the rules for a long time. He wants us first to know who we are, how much he loves us, what Jesus Christ has done for us, the resources he's made available to us, our wealth in Christ. We are the objects of the envy of the angels. We're God's highest creation. We are the apple of his eye. We are precious to him. Because God knows if we don't get that straight, nothing will make any sense. So the first three chapters, in chapter after chapter, God tells us how precious we are, how loved we are, and that he has made a new body made of Jews and Gentiles, which are incredibly at odds. And he's put us together in one body called the church. But now in chapter three, and in chapter four rather, he's going to start to tell us, okay, in light of who you are, how then should you live? And so chapter four begins with this word, these words. As a prisoner of the Lord, remember Paul is in prison when he writes this. As a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So now he's going to tell us how do we live a life that is worthy of bearing the name of a Christian. And the first thing he's going to highlight is unity. Because that's why Christ died. That's what Christ prayed for. And that's what the Holy Spirit works incessantly to do. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. He doesn't say, I command you. He says, I beg you. I beg you, please. Don't you understand what God wants of you? I want you to live a life worthy of who you are to bear the name 
Christian. Now, how do you pull that off? Well, it's pretty obvious we have done a miserable job. We divide it into three, bra three branches and 20, 30, or 40,000 little branches. I would not call that unified. God gave us the first thing Paul wrote now is, okay, how do you pull it off? And the first thing he's going to say is, I have given you seven graces that will enable you to be united. And then he's going to say, I am then going to give you seven doctrinal bases on which you to take your stand to be united together. First of all, the graces. Why do we have 47,000 Protestant denominations? Why did the Roman Catholic Pope and the Eastern Orthodox Patriarch, why did they each excommunicate each other? Why does the church divide? Every day churches are dividing everywhere in the world. Why? What's at the heart of division? Theology? Not often. Occasionally, yes. What is at the heart of our division? I can answer that in one word. Ego. You see, most churches are not split over substantive matters. They're split over ego. Pride, which is the killer of most everything. Or if you want to call it selfishness. God is now going to say, these are seven virtues you must work on. In fact, he's going to say, you must be diligent. You've got to work really hard at these because these don't come naturally. If you're going to want unity in a church, and by the way, a church in transition like uh, Trinity Church here, unity is very, very, very vulnerable. How do you get it? These are seven things you must be diligent to work hard at if you're going to have unity. And here they are. Here's verses 2 and 3. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There it is. Did you see the seven? There they are. With all humility and gentleness, patience, tolerance, love, diligence in the bond of peace. There they are, seven of them. Let's look at them briefly. The first word is the most important because, as I said, the cause of almost all disunity is arrogance, pride, selfishness, self-centeredness. Humility is the opposite. Humility, the word actually means to think or to judge with lowliness. That doesn't mean to put yourself down. That's not humility. That's something bad. What is humility? Now, interestingly, this comes from John Wesley. John Wesley observed, and I quote, neither the Romans nor the Greeks even had a word for humility. The Latin and Greek at the time that Paul wrote, didn't even have a word in their language for humility. The very concept of humility was so foreign and abhorrent to their way of thinking that they had no term to describe it. 
In Paul's day, humility was regarded as distasteful. Pride was more highly valued. Sound familiar at all? In our culture? They didn't even have a word for it. In every culture, what people want is self-expression, self-confidence. I'm hot stuff, and on and on you may go. What was the first sin? Pride. You could be like God. Oh, wow. Or Satan. He was not content to be an archangel, Lucifer, but wanted to ascend to be like, like God. What does, but by the way, did you see the Bible, what it says in that text of Scripture? With all humility. And in another translation, it says, being completely humble. Doesn't mean just a little bit. So what is, what is humility? Um, I think the Bible itself tells us what humility is. And I think it's a marvelous verse. It's in Hebrews, chap I mean, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 3, which says, I, I, I beseech you to have a right estimate of yourself. For a person to have, let's say, a skill, and someone uh, says, you really have a skill, and you go, oh, no, 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 I don't really have that. That is not humility. That is stupidity. That is, that is something incredibly false. Humility is not having a lowly opinion of yourself. Humility is having a right opinion of yourself. For Michael Jordan to say, I'm a lousy basketball player, is not humility. That's foolishness. He's a marvelous basketball player. Humility is having a right estimate of yourself. You've heard of this concept of EQ, emotional quotient. They say that EQ in a job and success in your job is as valuable or more valuable than IQ, intelligence quotient. And the number one facet of EQ, go online and check it out, the number one characteristic of EQ is correct self-awareness. You know who you are. You know that, um, that someone wrote this, wrote this, humility begins with proper self-awareness. It involves Christ-awareness, and it involves God-awareness. We know that everything we have comes from God. For example, I played football, I played quarterback in high school, and I was never interviewed after a game, I was never that good, but um, let's say I was a quarterback and interviewed after the game, and we were successful, we did real well, and they're interviewing me, and they said, what do you think of the game? I said, I really did my job well today, I was really hot stuff, and on and on you go. Well, any quarterback worth a dime, and they get paid more than a dime, you know you're worth nothing, absolute nothing. You'd never know your name if you didn't have some people in those trenches protecting you. It's all about the linemen. It's all about those that give you the time to, to, to get back there and throw that pass. You would be nothing if you didn't have those people who are oftentimes never named, never given accolades, who protect you. You perhaps have heard the, the, the phrase, if you ever see a turtle on top of a fence post, you know it didn't get there by itself. None of us get there by ourselves. And a person who has humility knows that. They know that they know 
that they know that. Someone wrote this. The ego is the main problem in relations, for therein lies the origin of feelings of inferiority and arrogance, of envy and greed, of prejudice and defensiveness, and of intolerance and abuse. As William Temple noted, pride is always the root of spiritual failure. And so, the first thing we have to deal with as we if we're going to be unified, is our self-centeredness. One of the most haunting passages in the Bible is found in Philippians. Paul is writing to the Philippians, and he loves this church. He says, I am going to send Timothy to you. He says, and I have no one else like Timothy who genuinely cares about your welfare. And here's the next verse. I've never preached on it. I don't know anyone that ever has. Here's the next verse. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not the interests of Christ. Paul, who are you talking about? Church leaders. He says, come on. Let's be honest, folks. Here's the bottom line. Timothy is a really weird bird. He cares first and foremost about Jesus Christ's church. But everyone else they look out for their own interests, not the interests of Christ. Thankfully, there are exceptions. But God wants a whole church of exceptions where we do not look out first for our own interests, our own opinions, what we want. We look out first and foremost for the, the opinions of Christ. That's called humility and then gentleness. The forgotten virtue. Some have called it power under control. Moses said, I am meek. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, for I am meek or gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. That's our Jesus. Paul said, I, I urge you by the meekness and tenderness of Christ, I who am gentle among you. What is gentleness? My favorite verse on gentleness is found in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Paul writes this to the church at Galatia. If any of you are found or caught in a trespass, so if someone in the body here is doing something and it becomes publicly known they're doing something wrong, what do you do? Well, good. Read them the riot act. Confront them. No, that's not what the Bible says. Here's what the Bible says. You who are spiritual, restore them in a spirit of gentleness, watching to yourself lest you too be tempted. So if someone in the body is caught in a sin, which frankly we all do, what do you do? Well, first of all, you say, who's going to be the most spiritual? Who's the most spiritual person in this body? I can pick you out. Actually, I can. Here's how I do it. It's not me, probably. It's one of you. How do you find the most spiritual person in this body? Just listen to them talk a little bit about someone who's sinning. Listen to their language. They say, oh, this is my dear sister. This is my dear brother. I want them restored to Jesus. I love them. You say, I I'd like to go talk to them because I love them. My heart just breaks for them. And you know what? I could do the same thing wrong that they have done. 
I'm just as susceptible as they are. Oh, there's the spiritual one. You just found them. Remember? It says the ones who want to restore them can do it gently and know that they are also susceptible to the very same sin. If you had that attitude, what would you be like? Oh my, you'd be a beauty in the body of Christ. And God calls you spiritual. It's a nice thing. Be gentle. And then patient. Actually, the word patient means you have a long nose. So I think I qualify. I've got a pretty long one. Um, or we would ha say today, you've got a long fuse. Aristotle, the great Greek um, philosopher, wrote that the greatest virtue is the refusal to tolerate any insult and a readiness to strike back. There's, the Bible's always running countercultural against the culture. Here's Aristotle. The greatest virtue is to get even. The Bible says, oh, no, 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 no. Long, 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 long fuse. To give, um, um, John Chrysostom, a great preacher of the early days, wrote, this means to have a wide and a big soul. Patience. And tolerance. Now, tolerance is probably the mo one of the most mis- understood words in our cultural culture today. In fact, what we call tolerance is, is the exact polar opposite of tolerance. Tolerance today means you must all agree. The very word tolerance means you do not agree, but you are willing to listen to and put up with each other where you do not agree. One of the beauties about the body of Christ, unlike other organizations, is we have to learn to love people we don't like. Because we don't get to choose who comes into the body of Christ. God chooses. Other companies have rules. Uh, you have to be like this. You have to have this socioeconomic background. You have to be of this race. You have to be of this. Oh, we throw all of that out. It's all gone. We have to learn to love people who are not like us at all. That's tolerance. I remember I was preaching on Ephesians many years ago when I was a pastor in Houston. And I had come to this chapter and before the sermon, and this, by the way, is back in the early 80s. They had this guy, um, oh, by the way, in our church, back then, if they put a drum set up on the stage, people would walk out. Because, of course, that was evil. This guy came up there to sing. I don't know how he ever made it through, but he got up and he sang with a guitar this really, really rocky song. And I knew I'm going to get a hundred letters all condemning me for letting this guy sing this rock and roll with a drum set in the church. But thanks be to God, my text that week was this one. Being, bearing with one another in love. I'm going to do something now that I, I've done before, but I, I, I don't mean to put any embarrassment here today. But have you noticed any th head coverings today on anyone's head? Any of you notice? Why are you laughing? Oh, you're pointing. 
Jeff, what are you doing with that hat? Yeah. <laughs> Jeff, that's oh, Jeff, that's marvelous. We had a man in our church in 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 Longmont who wore a baseball cap every week. And some people, when you see that, you think that's disrespectful. So I went over to him in a service. I didn't tell him I was going to do it like I never told Jeff I was doing this. His name was Matthew. I said, Matthew, what are you doing wearing a baseball cap in church? He said, I'm Jewish. And if you're Jewish, the most disrespectful thing you can ever do is to have your head uncovered in the presence of God. And everyone, it was audible, they went, because <gasps> they had judged him as being disrespectful when in fact that hat was the highest sign of respect for God. You see, this is what we do. We make judgments about people. That was a pretty practical reason. Thank you, by the way, Jeff. What a good answer. We make judgments about people, but they're false. And, and God says, in my body, don't do that. You'll destroy the body. You'll, you'll, you won't be united if you do that to each other. You'll kill what I've tried to bring just by something like that. And then, of course, it says, in love. Of course, love means you sacrifice your well-being for the virtual but of someone else. That's what Jesus did. And even the word agape, which is the word used here, they, it was hardly ever used in Greek. They had the word, but hardly ever used. It's the kind of love that sacrifices for the good of another, just like Jesus. And how do you put that into play? Make every effort. That means if you're going to do these, you have to work hard at it. Someone said this. It's a great day. It's a great thing that you love each other. I once heard a seasoned saint say to a newly wedded couple, but if you're going to be marriage, you've got to work at it. The verb used here is a present participle, which means we must constantly be in endeavoring to maintain this unity. When I was in college, I was at a camp in northern Wisconsin, and there living near this camp was this woman known to be a very godly woman. Her, her husband was the president of a Christian college. He had passed away, and she was living there. She was a saintly woman who prayed a lot. One of my buddies and I decided to go visit her, and he was getting married that summer, and so we went to see her. Her name was Mrs. Edmund. We went to see them and told them that my friend was getting married. She said, do you want me to give you some marriage advice? And we expect, oh, no, here comes the sermon. This is what she said. She said, uh, is she selfish? If she is selfish, I'd, I'd encourage you to run. <laughs> if she's not, take her as your wife. That's all she said. Is she selfish? Obviously, selfishness will kill a marriage. It kills a church. It kills everything if we live primarily for ourselves because the goal 
is the bond of peace. Robert Moeller wrote the following, How to Split Your Church. So here's some good advice for you. Focus on your own desires. Focus exclusively on what you want and then do what you must to get it. Number two, listen to every criticism. Rumors and gossip need oxygen to catch fire. Three, focus on your pastor's weaknesses and not his strengths. Four, speak the truth or practice love, but never combine the two. Number five, store as many grievances as you can for future use. Six, forgive only those who ask you to, and only if they deserve it. Seven, hide your own sin behind harsh attitudes. Eight, use prayer to unite discontented people and spread inappropriate information. Nine, do whatever it takes to win. And ten, remember, you're on a mission from God. <laughs> That'll destroy the church. There are seven graces that we have to cultivate if we're going to keep the unity. But you basis. As Christians, there are certain beliefs that we hold in common. And guess what? There are seven of them. They all begin with the word one. Here's verses four to six. There is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Seven ones. There are seven things that if you don't have these, you are not a Christian church. You might call yourself that, but you're really not. Seven ones that we hold in common. One body. We believe in one worldwide body. One. One. Former John Calvin and others said, what are the marks? How do you know what is the church? They said a church is a body of believers who regularly preach and practice the word of God, who conduct the sacraments to communion and baptism, and they practice church. That's what they said. Those are the marks of a church. I would say that the marks of the church are found in Acts chapter 2, the early church, the church of Pentecost, and I use the acronym WIFE. A church is that which, uh, which upwardly focuses on the worship of God. That's the W. The second one, the I, that's going down, focuses on instruction from the Word of God. The F is fellowship with each other. And the E is evangelism and outreach to the world. That's what the church does. And you see it per perfectly, beautifully portrayed for us in Acts chapter 2. One body, one spirit. That obviously is the Holy Spirit. We believe in the enlivening, the convicting, the convincing, the empowering Holy Spirit. If you don't believe in that, you're not really a church. Not a Christian church. You're something else. We believe the Holy Spirit is the one that gives life to every church. If the Holy Spirit leaves, you might still conduct services, but you're not a church anymore. One hope. Our hope 
is that Jesus Christ is coming again. The hope of Christ's people, of churches throughout all of history, is the, 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 the unshakable conviction that our Lord Jesus Christ in person is coming back again. His parousia, His second coming, He's coming back again. One Lord, we have one Jesus Christ to whom we belong. This is Acts chapter 4. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is one name under heaven by which we are saved. We believe in one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our one Lord, one faith. This is what Paul wrote in Galatians. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. We have one gospel. The gospel of, 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 of salvation. One baptism. That baptism is our public identification with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ which identifies us as members of Christ's global worldwide church. One God and Father, who of course is our Heavenly Father. Back in the time of the Reformation, when Martin Luther, John Calvin, Erwig Zwingli, and others divided from the Roman Catholic Church, they came up with five, they're called the five solas. Sola means alone or only which defined what the Protestants, that's us, believe. First one was sola scriptura. We believe that the Bible alone is our source of authority. The second, sola gratia. We believe that we are saved only by God's grace, sola fide, through faith, sola, sola Christus, through the Lord Jesus Christ, and sola Soli Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. We believe in the scriptures. We believe in grace, faith, salvation through Christ, and the glory of God. That's what defines us as, as Protestants. About a hundred years ago, you might not know this because none of us were alive, but about in the early 1900s, Christianity was in dire straits in America today. Horrible. Almost all institutions of higher learning had removed Christianity. Seminaries all over this country did not believe in the Bible anymore. And there were some businessmen that contracted some very few seminary professors, like even at Princeton, and, and got them to write these pamphlets which defined the basic teachings of Christianity, without which you're not really a Christian. And these pamphlets were called the fundamentals. And that's where the term fundamentalist came from. These are the fundamentals. The deity of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, the substitutionary atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross, the physical, personal, and bodily return, a resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the inspiration and authority of the Holy Scriptures. You see, 100 years ago, hardly anyone in America believed in that. Actually, there are more people today who believe in the basic fundamentals than did 100 years ago in our country. Hard to believe. How, how do we determine 
What is it? What are the people that hold to the basic doctrines of Scripture? One of the ways I teach people to remember it is by the four signs. Those that are not Christian will add to the Scriptures. They will say, we love the Bible, but the Bible plus the Pearl of Great Price, the Doctrines and the Covenant, the Book of Mormon, the writings of Mary Baker, Eddie, or the, the Watchtower Society. They'll add something to the Scriptures. Subtract. They will subtract from the full humanity and the full deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus was a good man. He was a godly man. He was an angelic man. He was the first created man. No. Full humanity and full deity of Christ. They will add they will subtract from the full deity of Christ. Three, they will multiply rules and regulations required to be acceptable to God. Not by grace through faith, by grace through faith plus church rituals, following the rules and the regulations, certain rigors you have to go through. They'll multiply what you need to do to be acceptable to God. And the division, they will divide us into us and them. We're the holy people, they're the unholy ones. The last I knew Christianity, is summarized in the following way. As Christians, we are simply beggars telling other beggars where you can find the bread. None of us have any right to look at ourselves any higher than any other. We don't divide us into us and them because we're all beggars in need of God's eternal salvation. Well, that's it. Unity. How does a church like Trinity at a time that is so vulnerable maintain unity. We have to cultivate certain virtues at the heart of which is humility. How do we maintain We stand firm on things that the church for 10 years has stood firm on. How do I know? Because this very day 2 billion people this day around the world have repeated the following. They have stood two billion and they have said, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, and he ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from thence to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. That's called the Apostles' Creed. Roman Catholics... Eastern Orthodox in Providence. Perhaps as many as two billion this day have recited that. The foundation on which we stand as Christians, I believe in God the Father. I believe in the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the resurrection. That's who we are. That's the bottom line of our unity. Have you ever been to Yosemite or the Redwood Forest out in California? You see these massive trees so big that you can drive cars through them and you can hold a, a dance floor on top of some of them. 
What you might not know is that these redwoods that tower hundreds of feet up into the air have a very shallow root system. So you might wonder how with these heavy winds that the West Coast experiences, how do these giant trees with a very shallow root system stay erect? You know what the answer is? Even though their roots are very shallow, they spread out far to the side and they interweave with other redwood roots. So the root systems are so intertwined that those huge, huge trees can withstand those strong, strong winds easily because not the depth of the roots, the interconnectedness of their roots. That must be us. Trinity Church, a church that stands strong with commitment, no wavering. But a, strand, a church also that cultivates the virtues that enable us to remain united. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that this body during this time would know an unusual sense of the Holy Spirit's unity, which you behind the scenes, oh, Heavenly Father, are creating and working at that we can't even see, but you work at it constantly. May we be a body of people who so love one another, who so submit to one another, who so submit to you, that this unity is palpable, and our love for each other is deep and abiding. We pray for this in the name of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, for your glory alone, Heavenly Father. Amen.